Dr. Olivia J. Hooker. She had a list of accomplishments that seemed endless. She was the first African-American woman to serve in the Coast Guard. She received a doctorate in psychology and joined Fordham University's faculty in the 1960s. Dr. Hooker also witnessed one of the worst massacres in U.S. history, the Tulsa Race Riots of 1921. Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. These are just a few of the many events that happened in the life of this inspiring woman who the world lost last month at the age of 103. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Olivia Hooker in her home in White Plains, New York, just a few years ago. I'll share part of that interview with you. But first, joining me by phone is Kirkland Ward. Although he and Dr. Hooker weren't blood-related, she considered him her nephew. Here, Mr. Ward shares his memories of the woman he called Aunt Teak. My grandmother and um, Dr. Olivia Hooker were best friends from childhood. And when I was a child, um, my grandmother used to take me to White Plains to visit Antique, which is Dr. Olivia Hooker. Um, and yeah, just through childhood. And you called her Antique. What, what, what does that stand for? I'm not sure where that came from. That's what <laughs> my grandmother always called her. Like that was just the, her nickname, Teak. Do, uh, do you know how the two became friends? Um, just through family. I know they, they grew, they, their families were intertwined, like, every, like, you know, they knew each other's uh, parents and, you know, just through childhood, like the families were always very close. Uh, my aunt Teak, she became my uncle's uh, godmother, my uncle Eric's godmother. Um, my grandmother had three kids. She had uh, James, Eric, and Janice, and Eric was the middle child. He is the actual godson of aunt Teak. Um, my mother is not, is not, um, goddaughter, although that's what she's been called. Um, my auntie has called her her niece at times, but, um, yeah, there's no blood relation, but we're, we're all family. And what's your first memory of, of Olivia Hooker? Um, I just remember her being very regal, um, you know, she she lived in that small house in uh, in White Plains. I remember the big piano. I remember her father, who I called Pop Pop, who was alive at the time when I was young, um, who lived in the house with them. Do you remember even hearing anything about maybe some of your aunt's successes? No, not at all. The only thing that I that I really experienced with my auntie when I was younger is that when I was in fifth grade, I had a teacher who was trying to. Uh, for whatever reasons, trying to put me into uh, special schools, special classes. And so, you know, um, Dr. Olivia Hooker, she was um, a child psychiatrist at the time. Um, she evaluated me, and and the uh, result was that I just wasn't challenged enough, but I definitely did not need uh, special classes or anything like that. And, she, and, I, and I found out later in life that she did that with – Several of the the kids in my family, you know, she evaluated them and they went on to do great things. So she was really there for the family and she really helped um, the kids in their development as far as, you know, the schooling back then. How different do you think things would have been had you been, you know, not had her there? Oh, that would have been crazy. I can't even imagine what my life would have been. So moving forward, do you have any other other memories of, of, of her in particular? Um, not as a child. I have more memories growing up because when I found out, you know, I, when I found out about everything that she did, I was basically an adult. 
So let's take it step by step. So when you first found out, for example, that she was one of the last people that lived through these horrific race riots in Tulsa, Oklahoma, what describe what you were thinking? What was what was going on at that moment for you? Um, well, at that time, I, you know, I was still a little. It was like the information on that was still a little scarce. So I did the research on Tulsa, Oklahoma, and found out about Black Wall Street. I heard about Black Wall Street prior to that. Um, but I didn't have enough information, so I did a lot of research on, on Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Black Wall Street. What is Black Wall just, Street? Can you describe that for uh, my listeners who don't know? Yeah, Black Wall Street is basically, um, I think it was the Greenwood section of uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, where black people were thriving. Um, we had our own businesses. We had our own banks, our own companies, bus lines. We had everything. We were doing. We had our own oil at that time, and which is where the money was coming from. We we pretty much lifted ourselves up. How do you think um, that being part of that shaped her thinking of the world? Um, I'm not sure. I know because it's funny. And, you know, she, uh, she met the president. She met uh, Barack Obama. And Obama made a speech about her. And he was talking about how she, um, instead of getting bitter, she just turned it, turned you know the energy around and did something positive. Became you know the first uh, African American uh, woman in the Coast Guard, and you know she did a lot of positive things. You know um, uh, the child uh, therapy, you know psychiatry, taking care kids, evaluating kids, and stuff like that. She did a lot of positive things instead of becoming bitter. And I feel like a lot of people would just be very bitter behind something like that, but she really turned it around. I think that, to me, that's the strength of her, is that she turned all of that around and 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 persevered to move forward. We just heard about Dr. Hooker from her nephew, Kirkland Ward. Now we hear from her in an interview I did a few years back before she passed away. Dr. Hooker starts by recounting what the racially and politically tense atmosphere of Tulsa, Oklahoma was like before the race riots of May 1921. That massacre left thousands of people homeless, hundreds dead, and started a crusade that would last almost a century. Well, before the riot, there were very prosperous, I mean, not high rises, but very prosperous businesses there. It was really like a self-contained community in that you didn't need to go downtown for anything. You, you could buy anything you needed right in your own neighborhood. They called it the Black Wall Street, correct? Yeah, well, I, they say that Booker, uh, Booker Washington called it Black Wall Street when he visited there one time, and uh, the name stuck. And actually, as I say, it was just a nice, prosperous neighborhood. And most of the people, I'm sure, knew that there was prejudice and racism. But I was a little girl, and I didn't know because everybody treated everybody well. And you were I, like six years old at the time? Uh-huh. And so I didn't know that there were people that would do hateful things to folks who had not bothered them at all. And I think that's why it was such a shock to me when we got up on the morning of the riot. I heard these noises hitting the house, blip, 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 like that. And I said to my mother, how can it be hailing when the sun is shining brightly? And she said, oh, it's not hail. 
and she said, come with me. And she took me to the front uh, living room to peep through the blinds up on top of the hill. We were the last house on the hill. And uh, she said, you see that thing up there? That is a machine gun. Mm. And you see the American flag on the gun, and that means your country is shooting at you. Well, this is a total surprise to me. And so she took took me back and put me under the big oak big round oak table she had and she put one child under each one of the table legs so that we wouldn't be killed, I guess. And she was putting water on the house to keep it, you know, so it wouldn't burn no matter what they did. And uh, she was pouring water on all the windowsills and things like that. Dr. Hooker, what started these race riots? Well, the story is that a young man who was a window washer got on the elevator, but the elevator wasn't lined up, and he stumbled against the elevator operator, who was a white 17-year-old girl. And she screamed, so people concluded that he attacked her, and he was put in jail and the crowds were revved up, and actually there was a newspaper, but nobody can find the copy of the newspaper that said, Negro to be lynched tonight. Mm. So, the And black, this is without a trial. Yeah, so the black soldiers, uh, who had just come back from World War One, fighting for democracy, and they said, no, we're not gonna let that happen. They took their rifles, and went down to the jail to protect the young man so he could have a court trial. And uh, as they were down there, they were outnumbered greatly by you know people who wanted to do bad things. And the sheriff said he didn't need these soldiers that were volunteering to come and protect him. And meanwhile, the people in the crowd, I guess, got a little restless, and one of them asked a, a man, what are you going to do with that gun? And the guy told him, if I have to use it, I'll use it. And so then he shot that person. And that started the you know, the fighting, actually. We don't know how many people were killed that night. but I heard somewhere between 300 to 1,000. Yeah, well, yeah that, that's a good estimate, probably. But at any rate, the next morning was when they decided to pillage and burn all the all the black people out of their homes. And so your parents also had a business, correct, that yeah, was, yeah, was my destroyed? Yeah, had, had a department store, and uh, it was doing very well. However, because a department store, you stock your store for fall in the spring, so that's on credit. And uh, my father, after the riot, because his store was reduced to just nothing but rocks and bricks. And uh, he discovered that the safe was still intact. He didn't know. It was so big they couldn't carry it away in their little horses and buggies. And uh, it was intact. So he didn't have money, but he had war bonds. And he had... Uh, other people's money in there, people who had a little 
cash to save would come to and say, Mr. Hooker, I put my name and my address on here, and you keep it in your safe till I need it. So a lot of people did that just, you know, to stay safe from robbers. And uh, Papa didn't put his own money in the safe because he would send my sister Irene downtown to the bank and uh, to put the cash from the store in there. However, she was never robbed because a highwayman wouldn't rob a 12-year-old girl. In that was pretty smart of your dad. <laughs> so that's why he sent her instead of one of the clerks from the store. Dr. Hooker, how many brothers and sisters did you have? Yeah, we have three sisters and one brother. My brother, at the time of this Holocaust thing, was eight years old. And so when they took all of the black men saying they were going to stop the fighting and disarm, there was a militia, the state militias like state troopers, and they said they were going to stop the fighting, disarm everybody. So they took all the men and my brother to a holding place and disarmed them. But later, when Walter White came, probably the next day, from the NAACP in New York. Uh, he found out that they took the guns away from blacks and then gave them to other people, saying, well, there's nothing out there. We took all the males, nothing out there but women and children. So, you know, you can go do what you want to do to run them out of town. So so that was their plan. Their plan yeah, was, was to move plan. you out of, out and, of town. But people had stockpiled weapons in their basements over the other side of town that we didn't know about, and we didn't know what they were planning. You know, they were waiting for an incident they could use in order to do what they wanted to do without saying to people, we want to uh, move you out and we'll give you so many dollars. They didn't want to do that. They just want to chase you out and take over what you had. So that's how that happened. Dr. Hooker, what ended up happening to the young man who who accidentally fell into the young white woman and now was, was his well, life was threatened? After that, the young woman absolutely refused to testify against him because he didn't do anything to her. He stumbled. So they didn't have a case, and he was dismissed. He was 18 at the time or 19, and I think he lived to be, a, you know— a, full-grown man, but I think he left Tulsa. He didn't stay there. And years later, you decided to um, take part. It was 19, what, in 1997, uh, you helped form the Tulsa Race Riot Commission to investigate the Tulsa race riots. So why so many years later was it important to investigate the riots and, and submit a proposal for reparations? Well, what happened before that was that a young black uh, congressman, you know, state congressman, uh, had, his name was Ross, had gotten the state legislature of Oklahoma to do a complete study of that incident. And he had gotten, they had a report, and it showed that we were victims, not aggressors, and that uh, the whole thing, you know, Really, we should have been protected, but of course we're, we're not protected. Because uh, was your your town was destroyed? Was your town destroyed completely? Oh yes, it was destroyed. Plus, I thought it was high time that somebody uh, 
would make sure that America knows about this thing that's been kept secret all these years. And uh, I said, we all need to, to take part in this because it's a chance to get the truth out. I mean, by law, it should be told the same way the Holocaust in Germany is told to children. And they should know these things happened in this country. And maybe it would, you know, it might motivate them, you know, to be a little more socially sensitive. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV-FM. I'm Robin Chan, and I'll be right back to continue my conversation with Dr. Olivia Hooker about her inspiring and extraordinary life and a recent resolution honoring her contributions to the women's and civil rights movement. WFUV is supported by a community of smart, curious, caring people. And at WFUV, we're committed to supporting community organizations doing good work in the New York metropolitan area. WFUV's Strike Accord campaign spotlights a particular issue every quarter. You'll hear cityscape programs and news features that address those issues and public service announcements for local organizations dealing with them. WFUV's Volunteer Community Advisory Board is contributing their ideas. If you have any suggestions for themes, please contact CAB at WFUV.org. Dr. Hooker, what happened right after you graduated? What, what was your well, next step? Well, from Ohio State, uh, you see, the Depression was still on. I mean, we went through to school. And, I mean, they were just bare bones. Nobody had money. We couldn't afford to buy the textbooks that were assigned. But what we did was the whole group would get together and decide, you buy with one book and I buy one and the next one. And we shared our books. And actually, you couldn't even afford lunch money. You bought a Mr. Good bar, which had plenty of peanuts in it, and ate that for lunch. And then when you got home, you, you had a snack, you know. But uh, very few of us could just walk in the lunchroom and plunk down money for a tray full of food. <laughs> And it seems like there is um, something that's consistent in what you're what you're talking about, whether it be the community coming together after uh, the Tulsa riots, or uh, you and your friends coming together to share um, share each other's books and 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 helping each other. There seems to be a real community that each one was helping the next one was helping the next one. Would you say that's accurate? Yes, and uh, we wanted everyone to learn and graduate and get a job. And, you know, we wished each other well, and uh, there wasn't a cutthroat competition that there seems to be now in schools, but uh, it worked for us, and we could see the results, because at first I thought, having graduated, that I couldn't find a job. I, I applied a lot of places, but they weren't hiring people who looked like me, and then finally... Uh, and what did you graduate with? What did you have your degree in? In elementary education. But I had a second major. I, I took my second major in psychology. And uh, I needed it in teaching third grade because the principal that finally you know, agreed that I could have the vacancy at his school. So I had 48 children my first year of teaching. And of course... You know which eight they chose to send me. The eight troublemakers in their class came to me. Well, that was a class that would baffle a saint. So how did you go from um, teaching these, uh, uh, should I say, 
what's a nice way to say the recalcitrant children. <laughs> <laughs> How did you go from teaching to uh, deciding to uh, join the Coast Guard? In 1944, the Navy decided they would take black women. So I waited to see who might join because we had campaigned for the other services to accept black women. At that time, only the Army had what they call WAX, Women's Army Corps. But uh, the others didn't have any of us. So I waited, and I didn't see anybody joining up. And then I thought, well, maybe if I join, and if I live, <laughs> somebody else might come. So that was my, my purpose in sending in my papers. And when I, I sent them in to the Navy, and they sent them back and said, there's a technicality. So... I went over the papers. I didn't see anything wrong. and I. Do you think it was just them trying to keep you out? I sent them back the second time to the Navy. Got another letter saying there's still a technicality. So I thought, well, I don't see anything wrong. And at that time, James Forrestal was secretary of the Navy. And uh, so I wrote to him and I said, you tell me what the technicality is. And being Secretary of the Navy, he wrote back and said, I don't see any technicality. I'd be happy to have you enlist. So I thought, well, all right, that's an invitation. I'll go over to the Coast Guard, which is in the Navy during times of war, and I won't be under those two ladies that have a technicality. <laughs> I'm Robin Shannon speaking with Dr. Olivia Hooker about her achievements and contributions to both the women's movement and the civil rights movement. Dr. Hooker, did you face less discrimination in the Coast Guard? Yes. Uh, actually, I didn't experience much discrimination in the Coast Guard because they had a rule for everything, and uh, people pretty much obeyed the rules. And... Uh, but had you gone into the Navy, you might have faced uh, more challenges. I might have, if because I didn't find out. I was just too naive. I didn't find out what the technicality was, was my skin color. I, I thought there was something else wrong, you know. And uh, so they did have black women in the waves later on. Now, were you in there with other women, or were you in, there with, in the U.S. Coast Guard? Because you were the first African-American woman to join the Coast Guard. So were you... Yeah, as an enlisted woman. Now, they did have six black nurses, and they were ensigns. They were officers, but they were stationed in New York at one clinic. So what did you do while you were in the Coast Guard? So, well, first you go through basic training, and uh, then you have a chance to choose a school to go to, two schools that were still open at this late date when I was I was inducted in 1945, and the war was kind of winding down over in Europe. And uh, so the schools that were open were the Yeoman School, which trained you in Greg Shorthand and uh, typing and stuff. And then they had storekeeper schools open, but I didn't want to be a, scar a storekeeper because I intended to go to graduate school, and I thought the shorthanded would do me more good for taking lectures. So I, I chose yeoman school. So you went from, uh, even though you were in the Coast Guard, you knew you wanted to go back to teaching. 
you were saying how you were preparing yeah. for that. So yeah, I wanted to go uh, to get a master's degree in education, and I thought that would be better. And I was determined to get into Columbia University on the GI Bill, you know, and work on. So I was pushing so I could find a place to live in New York So because they didn't take us in the dormitory too, you know, willingly at Columbia. And, well, they said they had no room. It's possible. And I said, well, I have to get to New York. So you decided to uh, go to Columbia, and mm -hmm. you earned your Ph.D. where? No, no, I own, earned the master's at Columbia, in, at Columbia Teachers College. And then I tried to get a job. And finally, you know, I wrote to Letchworth Village, which is a state school for slow learners. And I applied for a teaching job because I saw I wasn't going to get a psychology job. And the, the director at that time of Letchworth Village was a very fine Dartmouth graduate, an elderly man, and he wrote back and he said, with all your training, you don't want to just come here and teach. He said, but there's an internship in psychology, and maybe you could become an intern here and, you know, work in psychology. So that's what I did. When I finished that, I was given a job way upstate in Albion, New York which is a small-town, farmer, retired farmer's town then, and they were determined to keep that town as white as snow. And so... And here you come. <laughs> and here I came. So I had to fight so many battles in that town. Everybody knew me, of course, because there's only brown face in town, but uh, they, you know, got to take it for granted if you don't serve her, she's going to sue you or something. <laughs> so, Now, Dr. Hooker, most women um, in this time period were told, okay, it's fine to get an education and it's fine to get a job, but you also have to get married. Did you ever get married? I never did because the one person I thought I might share my life with was driving up from Atlanta. He was a vice president in, in a company that had offices in New York. And he was driving from Atlanta to New York and died of a heart attack. Mm -hmm. So that ended that. And I thought, well, I don't know anybody else who has the sensitivity and that I think I could spend my life with. So I didn't, I didn't engage in any long-time commitments <laughs> because I, I uh, would have liked you know, to have married and had children and so forth and so on, but it did work out. So my godchildren, their parents shared them with me, so that worked out very well. So, Dr. Hooker, uh, State Senator Andrea Stewart-Cousins introduced a resolution honoring you for your achievements and contributions to both the women's movement and the civil rights movement. What does this honor mean to you? Well, I was absolutely astonished when her office called and asked me if I'd be willing to come to Albany because it was a Women's History Month and they wanted to honor me, they had arranged for me to talk to the interns and then go to the Senate session. Then they, they had the resolution read on the floor and named the day 
as Olivia Hooker Day, and I I was astonished because I said, well, if this gets in the press, I'll hear from people that I didn't know were still alive, you know. I thought that was a, a very nice day. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind me asking, how old are you? I'm 95. 95. And when's your birthday? Mm-hmm. Your birthday? My birthday is on Lincoln's birthday. And, you know, when I was a little girl living in Kansas, they make a big thing out of Lincoln's Day, you know. And so I always enjoyed my birthday because there would be a a waffle dinner or something at church and all that sort of thing. So I sort of shared Lincoln's glory (laughs) by being born on his day. (laughs) And my final question is, what did you think of the documentary about the Tulsa race riots? Well... I kept telling there's too much of me in there. Why don't you leave some out? But still and all, I think it was a good thing at least to let people know what happened and to make them more watchful when they see signs of distress up between human beings, regardless of what color they are or what language they speak. We need to get along and we need peace very much in this country and uh, not to be separating each other into little groups and fighting the others. We need peace. And so I try to stress whatever chance I have to emphasize peace. Thank you very much, Dr. Olivia J. Hooker. Oh, you've been very kind. You sure I could make you a cup of tea or something? You've been listening to Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. I'll leave you with this, a little bit of Dr. Hooker doing something she enjoyed, playing piano. Dr. Hooker, you were and are a true inspiration. Rest in power. (laughs) 